Hello and welcome to a new episode of Talking Law with me, Sally Penny, MBE. I'm a barrister at Kenworthy's Chambers in Manchester, the Joint Vice Chair of the Association of Women Barristers and the founder of Women in the Law UK. A big thank you to Capstix LLP for supporting this episode. Founded over 40 years ago, Capstix is a leading UK law firm providing specialist legal advice to the health, housing, regulatory and social care sectors. They are a national full-service firm with five locations across the UK. Find out more at capstix.com. Before today's conversation, I wanted to let you know about two new books I've written that are out now available on Amazon. The first is Talking Law and Skills, which offers guidance on everything from negotiation skills to communication skills to career management skills to leadership to how to manage overwhelm. All the crucial skills we lawyers need as we return to in-person practice after COVID-19. I do hope that you will take a look and find it useful. The second book is called Where Are You From? A book created for children and adults which amplifies and celebrates 31 voices from black British history. I'm passionate about ensuring that black role models are visible for all, especially young people from all backgrounds. So please do support Where Are You From? It's available now on Amazon, just in time for Black History Month in October. Today I'm talking law with Paul McFarlane, an interview in which I discuss with him his 20 years experience of advising clients in the public sector. Paul is a partner at Capstix and manages a team of lawyers providing the full range of employment law advice to health, police and emergency service clients. He is also hugely involved with Black Solicitors Network. I started by asking Paul why he chose to be a solicitor and he revealed that entering the law was a surprise even for him. Yeah, so unlike most of your guests I've listened to, who appear to have this drive and strive to be a lawyer from when they were very young, um, that was not me. I wanted to actually be an economist or a journalist, and um, I sort of fell into law because uh, it was the only other A-level that I thought I'd be reasonably good at. I was studying economics and maths at college, um, and yeah, I decided to do law as the third one, and it transpired that I uh, was better at law than economics and maths. Um, and so uh, I decided that I'd go to one of the more stable professions rather than journalism, and I took a law degree at Middlesex University, and 30-odd years later, we're, we're still here. Wow. <laughs> and why solicitor and not barrister? I suppose it's a question that I'm interested in. Um, but, for, you know, sometimes people can't decide, can't they? I always knew I wanted yeah. to come to the bar. Why did you choose? Well, I, well, I knew if I was going to be a, a lawyer, it wouldn't be a barrister. I, I, never, I never felt that I wanted to be an advocate and that I didn't think that I played to my strengths. Um. Yeah, the advocacy side of things was not something that particularly appealed to me. Um, so I, I went down the solicitor branch. 
And also, why employment law? Because I noticed in my research, for example, um, you trained at uh, TfL, which is yes, London. Yes, it was TfL now. Yes, right. Yeah, right, TfL. Yeah. Well, it wasn't then, I suppose. But, um, no. but but that is an interesting job. I've always been really curious about, you know, what being a lawyer there must mean, apart from the usual sort of trade mm. union issues, but, you know, deaths mm. on the railway. There's all sorts that go on mm. there. Um, and, and so just help me, why employment law and not, for example, crime or commercial litigation or, you know, chancery, um, for instance? So um, going back to m- me starting out at London Transport, obviously that wasn't, that wasn't my first choice. I spent three years looking for a training contract. It wasn't called a training contract in those days. It was actually called an article clerk, becoming an article clerk. Yes. Um Took me three years, over four hundred applications, over twenty interviews, um, and then I saw an advert. I think it must have been the Law Society Gazette for a position as a trainee at London Transport, as it was then. And it was. I thought, well, this is different. I wasn't thinking about in house. I'd not even contemplated working in house, and uh, went there. The interview went really well. It was the first interview I actually felt that I was given an opportunity to express myself fully and I felt comfortable. Anyway, I was offered the I was offered the job and um it was it was a really interesting experience, as you say, it's uh quite different compared to working in private practice. So obviously no timesheets, etc. Um but they were quite um innovative in terms of this is in the early 90s, so computers were a new thing in terms of office work, and they were quite on board with that. And I spent three, I had three seats. So one was in property, or real estate, as they now, now call it these days, the jazzed up names now. Yes. <laughs> um, so I spent eight months there, eight months in commercial, and eight months in litigation. But in my first seat in property they needed somebody to sit on an employment tribunal case um and so they said can you sit on it so i sat there and uh, it's quite a famous case of an employment it's an indirect sex discrimination cause case called london underground versus edwards yeah and it's all about a how the change in rosters disproportionately affected women and i was just fascinated it just sort of gripped me just the, the employment tribunal environment, uh, the way the case was presented, the law was quite interesting. And I, I knew then that if I was going to stay in the law, that it would be employment law. So that sort of is a roundabout way explains how I decided that employment law was going to be for me. Well, it, it's interesting. And just going back to precisely how you started that by saying three years to get a training contract, as is now known, but to become an articled clerk. I mean, they still call it articles in some of the Commonwealth jurisdictions, Mm. don't they? Like Canada, for instance. Was that tough? Where did you find kind of the resilience? Long time to get pupillage, but it wasn't three years. It was very tough. Um, At times you sort of question, is this going to be, are you actually going to make it? Are you actually going to do it? But I think I'm a quite driven person and I'm a person who's very determined um, I should also say that 
I wouldn't be here without the support of my parents. Uh, I think that was really important in terms of they gave me emotional support. They couldn't, I don't, well, they couldn't give me support in terms of knowing what to do to try and get into the profession, but they certainly gave me lots of emotional support. And um, I was also quite lucky because my girlfriend, then now wife, um, she had obtained a training contract relatively easy, easily compared to me, but she was very supportive. Um, and I think it was with those support mechanisms that helped me keep going on and keep on applying and trying. And uh, eventually it came good. Yeah. Well, you've been in the law now. Gosh, I don't want to age you. I try not to be ageist on here. <laughs> Out of people's, people's ages, yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you mine. I'm 53. And uh, half of that's been in law, so we're very lucky to, to have you. Do you think that they were some of the experiences that led you to become involved in Black Solicitors Network? And secondly, do you think that BSN is still necessary. And then perhaps, you know, what is BSN for those who perhaps don't know what Black Sisters Network is? Okay, so the Black Sisters Network was formed in 1995 and it promotes the interests of Black Sisters to provide professional support and information and inform and influence DNI, that's device inclusion, best practice. Um, and we also consult or engage with government and the Law Society and SRA in terms of dealing with any consultations that affect black and minority ethnic solicitors. In terms of your question, in terms of my experiences and whether or not that informed my decision to become more active as a board director with BSN, definitely. I think for me, having gone through my journey in the law, I can see that there are things that I could have done differently uh, but there are also things that the professions need to do differently in order to enable black talent to both get a foot in the door to start off in the profession and then to achieve their best and make their way up through the ranks in the profession. And I think that's what the Black Sisters Network strives to do. And do you think it's still necessary? Because let me just paint a picture. We're post mm. uh, a re-emergence of Black Lives Matter, uh, which always existed, of course, before George Floyd, but wasn't terribly known and the, the sad death of George Floyd. And there is you know, much more now, a keenness for people to have those conversations about, well, what is the black experience uh, in the workplace uh, and beyond? And so because we talk a lot about diversity, there's a feeling that, oh, well, there's loads of black lawyers, uh, mainly because there's Black Sisters Network, there's black men in law, there's black women in law, uh, BAME of the Bar, uh, and a few other others. So people think, you know, the, the blacks, if you like, to coin a, a term, or the black and BAME community are doing okay. So do you, do you concur with that? Do you, and do you think the BSN is still necessary? Definitely necessary. Just a few statistics. I don't like to talk about a lot of statistics, but I think it's important to put things into context. So the Law Society's figures in 2018 showed that approximately 40% of law 
undergraduates were from a black and minority ethnic background, but only 16% of solicitors were from that background. So that then starts to ask questions, why, why is that drop-off? What happens between uh, taking a law degree and then the entry into the profession? Diversity League tables in 2017 showed that there were... 10% of trainees in 2006 were trainees. Now, that's increased to uh, 22%. But then there's quite a lot of attrition. So only 13% were associates and then only 9% were partners. And again, one has to question why are there these attrition rates? And I think in terms of race, the attrition rates are much more significant in terms of the drop-off from qualification to associate compared to women. Um, and so it, I think it's vital that organisations like the BSN are here to help and assist our individual members, but also to work with our corporate members to enable them or assist them to utilize the black talent that they have and also bring on black talent yes and i wonder paul i mean it's right and also then when you look at further up of course in this in the seniority ranks mm. you know the appointment to be queen's council appointment to the judicial bench uh, there's a there's a statistics which came out recently from the Ministry of Justice that in 14 years had been a one percent increase. That is not good, and I know there are many people who've been working hard on those stats. And it can't be that black lawyers are not as good as white lawyers or any of those sort of basic narratives at all. So there is something going on there. Um, what's your view on kind of networks? and advice to younger people. You know, you said that your parents didn't know where you would go. But, you know, on reflection, do you think things like networks, mentors, sponsors are some of the advice that perhaps you might give younger people or indeed your younger self in, in, in progressing in law? Yeah, um, I, I look at back at my career as a series, not say errors, I think probably that might be too harsh on myself, but a, a situation where I didn't know what I needed to do in order to, one, first get into the profession and two, then to move up into the profession. It's only through guidance and help from others that I have sort of made it to where I am. So in terms of networks, I think that's critical when I started out, we didn't have organisations like the BSN. And I think as a result, I didn't really know where to go in terms of what information I needed to try and better my prospects of, of, of getting into the profession. Uh, there are now a number of organisations, including the BSN, who offer that facility to people from working class black and minority ethnic backgrounds who probably are the first in their family who've gone to university. Um, and so they just don't have that background, that connection, those contacts that can help them uh, get 
a foot in the door. So, because I, I, I didn't really appreciate the need for experience or some work experience in law before going into or trying to get a law job. I, I was sort of, it was drummed into me that what was important was the qualifications. And the qualifications are important, but they're not enough. And that's something that I sort of drill into my, my children. Yes. What, what, what about this, Paul? What would be your advice to young people? I think three things I'd say is you need to have resilience. You're going to have knockbacks in whatever you do. If you look at, I mean, I, I always point to high achieving sports people. So, for example, Andy Murray, I'm quite a fan of his. Yes, um, me too. And even him, who's achieved a lot, um, he's had a lot of knockbacks. So you've got to have resilience and learn from each experience that you have. So that's one thing I would say. Um, and, and, and I should just add on that point in terms of resilience, that um, it helps if you've got a, a good and positive support mechanism around you. And hopefully that can come from your family. But if, it, if it's not from your family, then um, there, are, there are other networks like the BSN who can hopefully help and offer some support to you. I think when you're in, in work, do the best job. Each job, do your best and try and show those you're working with that you are doing your best uh, so that they'll want to come back to you and give you more work going forward. Um, and then the third thing is uh, don't be afraid to challenge yourself. Put yourself in uncomfortable positions. Um, it's really important that you do challenge yourself. So for me, I mean, you asked a question about advocacy. I knew I didn't want to be an advocate, but I knew to be an employment lawyer that I needed to do a lot more public speaking in terms of doing presentations, um, doing some advocacy, because you have to do some advocacy at preliminary hearings, etc. Yeah. And an early stage of my career, I decided that I was going to put myself forward to do these things. It wasn't something I wanted to do. It wasn't something I was naturally naturally good at, but I thought I needed to put myself in those situations so that I'd be more comfortable doing it. Yeah, so put put yourself in the in the hot seat if you like. Get out of your comfort zone. That's one of mm. the famous quotes, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah. Paul, I wonder then, um, in your career to date. Have you got a memorable case or a case that's meant a lot to you? Now, people often say it was my first ever case. In my case, it's, it's, it's one of them. I wonder if you've had a case that's kind of stuck with you in, you know, your really long career. Yeah, I think, I think, I think the Edwards case is one that sticks with me because it made a big impression on me as a junior person because... You asked a question about why employment law. I think for me, it's three things. It's about people. Mm. I'm really interested in people. Um, you made me ask me about books in a minute, and I might elaborate more about why I'm so interested in people. Um, the other thing in that case that was quite interesting, it's quite technical in terms of that the law around indirect sex discrimination wasn't as evolved then as it is now. And it, that case actually went all the way to the Court of Appeal. So I started out 
1993, seeing it at the Employment Tribunal and swallowed it through to the Court of Appeal. So it's quite a technical case. Um, and the third thing as well, which I liked about employment litigation is compared to other types of civil litigation, it's quite fast. Um, so oh, well, up until recently with the, all the problems we're having with COVID and also resourcing issues in tribunals, um, tribunal cases tended to be heard within six to 12 months of being lodged with the tribunal which is relatively fast compared to other types of litigation. So you could sort of focus on, on cases quite, and then deal with them. They'd either settle or be heard and then you'd move on. Um, rather than, I mean, I was, I went during my training, I was involved in a piece of commercial litigation, which had been going on for over nine years. Oh gosh. Um, and I just, <laughs> just thought it's not, that is not me. No, no. And and Paul, I want to ask you a bit about your favourite book and uh, your favourite fictional lawyer, or whether it's, that's on television or or in books or Netflix, as, as we've all been sort of exposed to now as a result of lockdown. I have to say, I don't watch much telly, but the only time I have been watching them recently um, is because of the lockdown. So, if you do, you read? Do you read? Have you got a favourite book, and perhaps why? I, I, I don't read. I don't read any fiction. Oh well, right, why so, is that? Um, I think true life is more interesting than fiction. I've just never, really, ever got into fiction. Yes. And back to a point I made earlier, I'm really interested in people. So, in terms of books, I, I've got quite a lot of autobiographies and biographies right. because I just I like to know what makes people tick yes and their flaws and what's what's made them get to where they've got to uh, so that's that is a, a real interest of mine in terms of books one of my first law books that I read when I was studying for my a-level law is a book by Harry Street. I think he's a academic at Manchester University called Freedom Individual and the Law. And that really did pique my interest in human rights law. Um, and yeah, so that that's a book that I, I, I like and I've really got a, a good interest in. But I'll look it up. Um, and then fictional, fictional characters, probably I'm going to be Obvious for somebody of around my generation, I'd say probably Rumpold. Yes, yes. I found him quite an interesting and funny character. Yes. Um, obviously uh, dated, and I heard your podcast with Martin Shaw. Yeah. <laughs> um, who said that they're looking about recreating Rumpold uh, for the present generation. I think that would be a good idea. Yes. Um, and prob- I mean, I'd like to think that we've moved on a bit since Rumpole because mm. um, at that stage was I think it was the sort of one female barrister in yeah. chambers, and uh, you know that was all a bit of a novelty, and 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 all the other barristers couldn't cope with the fact that this this other female barrister in in chambers. I think things have moved on quite a bit. Oh yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, and so I'd like to hope that. Uh, any new iteration of Rumpel will sort of reflect the world that we're in now compared to what it was then. Because I think 
people still have a view of lawyers being very stuffy. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's not my experience of most lawyers that I come into contact. You still do have the odd one or two that you think, or, or are, you, are you back in the 1950s or 60s? But um, most most of you are, 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 are up to date, I think. Well, yes. <laughs> I should leave. Maybe I'll pose that question on Twitter. Uh, are we up to date? Ask Paul McFarlane. Yes, I think in the main, people are certainly trying to be if they're not. Um, uh, Paul, can I ask you, well, then um, you yourself has, have written a book, haven't you? Um, which I, uh, I discovered. Yeah. Um, and you've written yeah. a lot of articles. Firstly, how did the book come about? And secondly, um, I want to talk about your work outside of the courtroom in DNI and outside mm. of BSN. Mm. Um, and, you know, I read a really interesting article that uh, was written about you actually in Forbes magazine, you know, congratulations for getting in there, about the lawyer trying to work hard on you um, to improve diversity and inclusion uh, there. So firstly, how did the book come about? What's it called? Uh, how can people get it? And secondly, why are you writing and um, doing the extra stuff outside of the courtroom? Right, so the book. The book comes. Book sort of is an evolution from the various articles I've written on employment law and policy issues over the years. And I was approached by a journalist about whether or not I'd be interested in writing a book. And I thought, yes, I would. And I thought, when was this, 2019? There was there were a lot of race issues going on there. So I thought it'd be topical to write a book on 20 questions that HR wanted answered on race. That that was the title of the book. It's an e-book, not, 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 I haven't got a physical copy, but... I know, I know, I know. You can get it on Amazon. I have ordered it. It needs to be an audible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, yeah, listen. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure they want to hear my dulcet tones. Oh, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> but so, so, that, so that's where the book came from. Um, in terms of the writing, so that, that probably goes back to me wanting to be a journalist. And um, I, I like writing... Um, I'm really interested in employment law and policy, employment policy. Um, and that sort of dovetails into your point around uh, DNI. I am really passionate about trying to make the workplace more diverse and inclusive for people like me. So somebody who is the first generation from my family in this country who went to university. Um, black, my parents are working class. My mum was a psychiatric nurse for over 40 years in the NHS. My dad was originally an engineer and then he was a cabbie. And they come from, they come from the Caribbean, so my parents are both uh, from Jamaica. Yeah. And, and I, I'm really passionate about trying to make sure that people from those sorts of backgrounds have the chance to achieve their best in whatever profession that they want to go into and not to have the obstacles uh, that I faced. I think they'll have obstacles. I think we all have obstacles, but um, I don't think they need to have as many 
and I don't need to feel as daunted about going into professions as I did. Yeah. So that's where that's where it all comes from. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you, you know you, you're quite successful, Paul. You could just sit back and enjoy the success, as many lawyers in the city and in around the country and globally choose to do. Or you could choose to make it harder for people coming up. And again, as some people in our professions choose to do that it was tough for them so it should be tough for you and that's how you learn resilience and that's how you come through I don't agree with that I ought to declare that and I don't think you do either but it's interesting Mm. that actually you've chosen to say look we can make this better uh, uh, and you don't want to see this the same things uh, which is quite interesting so what would be your kind of top tips then for perhaps for, for progressing have you got any thoughts on that Networks are really important. Networking um, both internally and externally with your colleagues um, and with clients. And this this is a difficult one in terms of this is where firms can be better in terms of making sure that their black lawyers have exposure to uh, clients at an early stage. I think that's really important. But part of that, the issue around there is making sure that the senior people within firms are more exposed to black lawyers. So lots of firms now and lots of organisations now are running reverse mentoring uh, initiatives. And I think those initiatives are really important in terms of the senior leaders getting an understanding of what it is that the junior black lawyers have had to face in their careers because a lot of them for no no fault of their own they they're just not alive to any of these issues and so because they're not exposed to it's not it's not the it's not a reality for them and so they have no understanding about those things Uh, and so the more that they do have an understanding about these sorts of issues that we've had to face um, I think a lot of people be more sympathetic and more encouraging and try and be of more assistance. So I think that's really important. Really interesting. And we ought to say the city firms are doing stuff, you know, this bridge, mm. bridge the gap. Uh, I've been helping them do stuff, you know, even Mishcons and loads. I don't know about all of them, but, you, but you're yeah. right. And I think reverse mentoring is good. But even from simple things like, you know, please don't touch my hair. You know, being mm. treated as though the people are pets and dealing with some of yeah. those still existing discriminatory issues. It's just good to have the exposure in the, in the conversations. Paul, let me ask you about well-being. Mm. Well-being is one of the things we're not good at. Uh, and particularly in law, it is long hours. You know, I get a late brief and I'm preparing a trial all night. And that involves coffee. Do you go to yoga class? No. You, you know, you're preparing constantly. Now, with better thinking and organisation, of course, I'm much better and I go to the gym, but not all the time. But I've noticed that actually you are a very keen runner. I mean, because how many marathons have you done and halves? Yeah, I, I, I'd probably put it, not so much in the past tense, but I, I wouldn't say I'm a, as keen a runner as I was. 
it's really like, so I've, I've run five marathons. Well, yes, but you're, you're running. <laughs> I run five marathons. My last marathon was in 2016. Wow. Wow. Uh, but you are, I mean, you still run uh, long distances. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I wonder if that has been one of the ways you you know you deal with your well-being in the law is it and and what other mm. ways or would you like to um deal with well-being and mental health some of the issues perhaps that we're trying to get better at talking about or dealing with what do you do for your well-being yeah. aside from the running so i think running's been really important for me i started running in 2005 i've always been someone who's done exercise and sport yes but um I wanted to run a marathon. I felt I could run a marathon. Um, so I started in 2005 and I did my first London in 2008. And actually I found it really helpful in a number of respects. It was sort of time to myself. Yeah. Time when I could sort of clear my head. Yes. Um, but also when you go out for a long run, um, initially when I was running by myself um, it just gave me some clear thinking space. So problems that I had, I could think about or asked on the run and come up with some solutions. Uh, and so that was helpful. Um, in 2008 or nine, I can't remember now, no, 2010, 2010, I joined the running club and that was, uh, really good for me because I got to meet other people they were able to help in terms of uh, progressing my running etc yeah uh, but also only going on the r long runs um, wouldn't be running fast on the runs we could have a chat um, completely I mean they knew I was a lawyer but I didn't really we didn't talk about law we didn't talk about w whatever they did we might talk about our children we might talk about all sorts of things but not necessarily about work so again time away from the day job um and i really enjoy it so even last night uh, we had our first social uh, for our running club since the pandemic and it was just nice to catch up with uh, lots of people who I haven't seen for over 18 months so um running has been definitely something that has helped me in terms of well-being um, but it's also helped in my work so Doing a marathon is, yeah, as I say, a marathon is it's not, it's not a sprint. It's it's a long journey. It's a bit like the law. Yeah, well, like dealing with big cases. Um, because what, what I found with a marathon is that the only way to do a marathon is to split it up into very small chunks um, and only think about that chunk that you've got ahead of you. Uh, don't try and think about the end goal, because if you think about the end goal, you'll not get there. But just think about the next, in my in my case, the next 5K, just the first 5K, then the next 5K. And I'd give myself a treat at the end of each 5K, like a drink or some sweets or whatever. Um, and it's a bit like a, a case. Um, you've got to think about, right, what are the issues now? I need to focus on this issue, these witnesses, deal with that. Then the next issue, the next witnesses. And then if there's any bits that need to be joined up then you can sort of see those things but if you just think about the whole 20 day case it's not going to work um so so yeah so i i found running really helpful for me in terms of 
well-being and also work. Yes, yes, quite. So, um, Paul, tell me, we know that um, your wife is also a lawyer. Uh, so two lawyers in one household. Crikey, is she still practising? Yeah, but we've got a rule. We've had a rule since we started going out that there's no law talk in our house. What? Not even the COVID, COVID rules. I have to tell Adam Wagner. No, no <laughs> law talk. No, no, no. It's, it's, it, I, I was very serious about that. Um, she does housing law. I've got no interest in housing law. I've got uh, absolutely not interested at all. Yeah. Um, she might be interested in employment law, but I don't want to be talking about employment law when I'm at home. I just want to switch off. We might talk about people. Yeah, yeah. And totally. issues that we've had with people in the workplace, but not not law, no. So tell me, Paul, um, a dear friend of yours or ours, um, died unexpectedly and suddenly and he well you can tell everyone um, his name um, and I'd like to dedicate this podcast to him because he was such a lovely gentleman who always made you feel so comfortable and at ease from my point of view whenever I was in London or you know whether awards or whatever lectures uh, and um, Stephen and, and I was thinking if Stephen was listening to this podcast um, he'd probably ask, what's next? So firstly, can you tell us a little bit more about Stephen? So Stephen is Stephen Friday. Um, he is a true inspiration. Um, I met Stephen when roughly about the same time as I met my wife. Again, she wasn't my wife then. She, he, she and he were board directors of the African Caribbean uh, Lawyers Association, which is a forerunner to the BSN, in the very early 1990s. And he always wanted to try and make sure that the generation coming behind us didn't have it so hard in terms of both getting into profession and then uh, achieving their best when they uh, were in it. Stephen was a partner in a North London law firm. Um, I think he practised probate and family law, I think. Uh, but don't quote me on that. Um, but he was very, as you said, very kind-hearted. Um, someone, someone who was who always enjoyed life. I mean, you, he always had a, a smile on his face. He was always trying to encourage people to do their best. Um, he wasn't somebody who took himself too seriously as well. Um, he, he was, he was a very generous person of spirit. I think, I think I didn't realize until his funeral that he did so much outside of the law as well. Um, I think he was a, governor at a school, um, he did some various other projects locally in his local region. Um, he was just such a lovely man and I think he was one of the people that encouraged me to become a board director of the BSN mm-hmm. um, and yeah, if I could do half the things that he did I'd feel very pleased. He is sadly missed, and and as a leader, he wasn't a sort of shouty shouty man, was he? Mm. He, he you know no. his, 
His leadership style was very much kind and gentle. He was under, somebody who was under the radar. You, you didn't really know... Well, if you didn't know him, you didn't know what he was doing, but he was doing so much. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and, yeah, he, 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 he didn't... Wasn't someone who was looking for any accolades or applause for what he was doing. He was just quietly just getting on with trying to make things better. Yes, yes. Well... That's why I wanted to talk about him, really. You know, he'd probably never come on the podcast if and if I'd asked him, say, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm too busy just doing this, doing this stuff. Uh, but he's very much missed um, by all of us. Um, Paul, what's next? And that was the question I was alluding to. You know, Stephen would probably say, what's mm. next? Have you thought about the bench? Because, you know, um, uh, Lord Reed is keen to see a more diverse Supreme Court in the six years before he retires. He said that publicly, so everyone's seen that interview. Um, is it books? Um, is it House of Lords? Um, I know you're very keen on that. Come on, changing policy um, and, you know, DNI. But um, just for a moment, I, I don't want you to exclude yourself from anything, but... Or is it all of those? I, I don't know, but I, I wonder what's next for P Paul McFarlane. So for me, it's definitely 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 not the bench. Um, I did when I was in my early forty forties um, apply to become a part time employment judge um, and wasn't successful. But I'm actually, in retrospect, quite pleased about that because I don't think the bench suits my personality mm. um it's not it's not something that i'm sort of driven i think to be a judge you need to have a love for the law i would say that i like I, I like what i do i really enjoy what i do but i wouldn't say i love it mm. and i think there's a difference um to be, I think to be a good judge, I don't say I think you can be an effective judge without loving it, but I think to be a good judge, you do actually need to love the law. And I, I can't say that's me because I've told you that my starting point was I didn't want to be a lawyer, it wasn't yeah. yes. <laughs> it? Wasn't, it wasn't my first choice. Um, in terms of my future direction, I think it's focused at the moment with Capsticks. I've really enjoyed my two years with them. Um, I can see we're build, building a really great practice in the employment team and the firm is very well managed and very well um, structured. Yes. And I can see where I fit into that. Um, so my, my immediate focus is to sort of build the emergency services employment law practice, which um, I'm doing with a number of others um, within the employment team. Uh, beyond that, who knows? I mean, as you say, there might be other things. I mean, I'm deputy chair of the Employment Law Association. Um, I'm a trustee with a Citizen Advice Bureau. Um, and so I'm interested in that sort of thing, governance yes. of organisations. And also, as you said, writing. Mm. Um, and, and what you're doing, podcasts, um, and I, I, one, I keep on saying that one day I want to do turn my attention to doing a podcast um, on 
policy employment policy employment law issues um so who knows that might be something in the future but it's not an immediate uh goal for me but it's certainly something i'm thinking about going forward yes well i hope you do it you know you know i hope i'm an effective uh, mentor when i mentor several women and men because I, I do go back and say what have you done since we had the conversation so uh mm. i look forward at some stage to saying well right paul um this time next year where is that podcast it would be never ending of course <laughs> uh you know given the empl- employment law and, and of course i've just written um a book on employment rights post-covid litigation so there's a whole load of other areas there so paul before we finish i'd just like to know what capsticks are doing in the diversity and inclusion space because it's really exciting um some of the stuff you've been doing and the embracing that they have you know a lot of firms talk the talk but they don't actually walk the walk they have glossy policies but there's a difference isn't there than having policies that tick a box and actually embracing the idea of diversity and inclusion for everybody yeah so we've done quite a lot in the two years i've been here but that's sort of culminating in the firm producing a diversity and inclusion strategy Um, and that includes setting targets uh, for partnership both salaried and equity for women and black and minority ethnic lawyers Uh, The firm recently set up employee engagement groups for ethnicity, uh, LGBTQ+, and uh, disability. Um, And again, those network groups are meant to sort of feed into the work that the firm is trying to do around achieving its targets. Um, And we're also... We've also um, commissioned uh, an inclusion survey across the firm and we're currently looking at the results of that survey again to inform the work that we need to do in terms of uh, meeting the targets we've set ourselves. We've set ourselves a four-year target in terms of uh, what what numbers we want to get in terms of partners for black and uh, women lawyers across the firm and we want to use that survey uh, to help us uh, start to shape the work we need to do on that, that uh, as regards to meeting those targets. So there's quite a lot of stuff going on. Yes. Um, and I would say also that um, what's really pleased me is the senior leadership's really embracing uh, the need to become more diverse and inclusive. We've done work they're not they're not um, complacent about things are really engaged in this subject and want to make sure that we utilize the talent we've got um, and uh, ensure that all of our lawyers achieve the best that they can yeah well I'm really excited to see and uh, I hope more firms take note do the same or similar work as you've been uh, doing. Paul, it's been really exciting and interesting talking to you. Um, you didn't tell us if you ha- if you could give us one of your biographies, given you don't read fiction, which one would it be 
Um, don't say Nelson Mandela because I think Harold Braco said that. No, no, no. Hillary Clinton. I'm trying to remember. You know, there's so many episodes. But I wonder, you know, if I was thinking, right, what would be? I need a bit of inspiration. You know, it's coming up to 21 years of the bar. Um, whether you've got a favorite book that you would say to me or somebody else or somebody like me, that would be a a good. Oh yeah, Um, you're thinking. Inspirational. I mean. In, 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 I'm thinking. Um, I mean, people I found really interesting. So, for me, Alex Higgins is a very interesting person um, in terms of his background, uh, where he came up from. Uh, he sort of he's one of these flawed geniuses, um, and that that character. It's not me. I'm, I'm certainly am not a flawed genius. Well, I don't think I am. Um, but he, he's very interesting. And then slightly more cerebral is um, Mike Brearley, who's a former England captain, uh, cricket captain. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big cricket fan. I, my, my, my dad's a big cricket man, and um, I sort of followed him into that. And, I, I, yeah, I love cricket. So Mike Brearley and Viv Richards. Viv Richards is my probably my... Uh, 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 hero in terms of uh, growing up and watching him bat um, and destroying England and all the other teams. Um, so um, I think Viv Richards would be my would be the, the autobiography. I don't necessarily recommend it for you, Sally, but for me, for me, that would be the book I, I, I like reading. And so, Paul, I know we are finishing, and um, I meant to ask you, and you alluded to it before. Your parents are from Jamaica. Uh, and you know your surname is McFarlane, and mm. uh, my, for my own father, in his career, he would often go to interviews, and of course, he suffered a lot of direct um, mm. discrimination or racism because the name Penny did not accord with um, the black man standing in the room, however able he was. And and I've written a children's book actually called Where Are You From? And it's mm. all about heritage and it's about black British history. Mm. So I, I wondered how important is it for you? And do you get asked a lot, oh, where's your name from? Because it sounds like a Scottish name. Do you then have to explain kind of, you know, slave trade, all of that? Or uh, are you just quite authentically just Paul McFarlane in your own way? Um, I don't think it's been many times that, people have asked me where does the name come from it has on occasion but it's not something that has been frequent yes i mean it's quite funny that i'm going to scott well hopefully going to scotland for the first time in my life in just over a week's time great um so um yeah i'm going to edinburgh with my wife and my daughter um, and I'm really, really quite excited about it. it. Obviously, there is some heritage in terms of the name McFarlane. It comes from there. I don't know where, where. I have not sort of researched it to find out where originally it comes from. Maybe that's something I should do while I'm up there. Um, but yeah, it's not. It's it's not. I've never fa- well, I've never faced issues around name. Um, what I have faced in the past is, and this is before the internet, so forgive some of your younger viewers because they, they won't understand this. So um, when you used to work and you'd be in dialogue with uh, colleagues or with 
clients who had not seen you um, and then you turn up to a meeting and as you go, usually with a meeting, you do sort of round the room introducing yourselves and so I'd introduce myself and I'd never forget there's one me- meeting I had Royal Mail and I'd been working with this person for about six months so I'd not met them and they, they'd not met me and there's a meeting of about 15 of us and then we went round the room and said my name and I could just see this woman's face like shock horror is that him it it really struck me off and and, and i and i'm not the only person to have experienced that it's, I've, I've spoken to my wife and she's had that sort of experience as well so i know it's not just me um so i've had that but i've not had anything about my name directly Minority students um changing their name so they're more anglicized because they they don't get employment um and the moment they kind of change it um, they get you know umpteen interviews mm, um you yeah. know chinese students often used to have the same thing but um and so it's it's just quite interesting it's an authenticity point where you know uh, young students say oh, shall i change my name shall i try to be somebody else all this sort of thing mm. um and i always say you could, there's only one you everyone else is taken but the the realities can be quite quite um hard yeah yeah i mean i, I, I... It's not something I would encourage, but I can see why some per- people might do it because for for an easier life. But um, it's not something I would advocate. Yes. Well, Paul, it's been wonderful having you here. Thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Uh, I hope you'll come back to tell me about what you've been doing on your own podcast in due course. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's been a pleasure, Sally. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope I've been able to provide some helpful information to your younger listeners. We'll speak and meet again. A big thank you to Paul McFarlane for Talking Law with me, Sally Penny, MBE. Thanks again to Capsticks for supporting this episode. Do visit capsticks.com to find out more about the firm. If you would like to support Talking Law, then please do get in touch. You can find me on Twitter at SallyPenny1 or search for Sally Penny or Women in the Law UK on LinkedIn or on Instagram. Do give me a follow. You can catch up with our previous episodes of Talking Law where you can hear interviews with guests such as immigration expert Gary McKindo and Paralympian Baroness Tanny Gray-Thompson amongst many others. Bye for now.